Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. And for the first time, Malcolm Spicer, executive editor of our sister publication, HBW Insight, is also with us. Today is May 6, 2022, and for our listeners in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as horse racing fans around the world, tomorrow is Derby Day. And just like the racing thoroughbreds, the FDA heard its call to the post this week with the release of the House version of a user fee reauthorization bill. It signals the beginning of the push to get the bill passed and enacted before August. Aside from codifying the agreements between the agency, the agency and industry to renew the prescription drug, generic drug, biosimilar, and medical device user fees, the bill also makes several policy changes. We found reforms to the accelerated approval pathway, efforts to encourage clinical trial diversity, as well as adjustments to speed generic drug approvals. So for the panel out there, was there any provision in here that particularly struck that particularly uh, stuck out to you? Well, we wrote uh-huh. a couple of uh, same day stories on uh, um, the two big ones that uh, um, caught our eye, the uh, accelerated approval reforms and the uh, the diversity uh, instructions for uh, FDA and thus uh, sponsors. Uh, I know uh, uh, Brenda, you and Derek took on uh, took on those, and there was a whole bunch of other stuff uh, included there that uh, we did a, uh, um, a table on, and we're sort of kind of uh, rolling out uh, in-depth coverage of uh, still. So there's a lot uh, a lot to uh, deal with. I haven't even gotten a uh, um, a page out looked at it yet, and it of course can. Uh, um, can change as it moves sort of through the uh, House committees and then uh, obviously over to the Senate as uh, as well. But uh, um, there's a um, there's a lot of stuff even for something that's sort of not a uh, uh, build as we're going to as a uh, as major reform. There are still uh, many very uh, uh, meaningful uh, uh, changes. Uh, Brenda or Derek, I don't know if uh, one of you wants to start to uh, start with the sections you tackled, but uh, um, there's a lot of uh, subtle but uh, um, important stuff going on. Yeah, I guess I can. You know, because I'm biased. I think the accelerated approval one was a was a big was a big big deal because partially because we've been talking about that the most in kind of the run up to the bill actually being released. Um, as it as they kind of made their way through the halls of Capitol Hill, the FDA officials and industry people to kind of push this agreement and you know kind of tell everyone what they were excited about and kind of answer questions accelerated approval reform kept coming up. Um, so we, we, and then we saw, um, uh, you know, three different plans, one from Democrats, one from Republicans and one from the FDA even on, you know, kind of what, what they would like to do. Um, in, in this case, we got, I guess, compromise is probably the right way to describe it. Um, cause nobody got what they, nobody got exactly what they wanted. Um, they, the, um, the withdrawal process was the big change that we saw, um, where normally, um, um, you, you would have, you could have an advisory committee meeting and then go through a bunch of steps and then have leading up to a second advisory committee meeting and then the agency making the decision on whether or not to withdraw the product. And that can take multiple years. We actually got one that's been running for, you know, going on more than two years now, I think. Um, And the change in the bill would get rid of that second advisory committee meeting 
if one has already been convened and made a recommendation on whether or not to withdraw. And that could that could really speed things up, which is what the FDA is looking to do. And, um, you know, a lot of their the uh, their advocates on Capitol Hill, too. Um, so th- in my mind, that's the big thing for me. Um, but, uh, you know, other people are going to take, a, you know, other things away from it. So. Yeah, certainly uh, accelerated approval, uh, um, uh, you know, having uh, the inability to kind of sort of to, uh, to kind of sort of stretch things out does give, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, FDA more authority uh, to uh, um, to work with sponsors or to get what they want, uh, you know, uh, on uh, um, on maybe even just completing the trial if uh, uh, the sponsor figures that they uh, they can't keep it on the market anyway, they may. Uh, Maybe they will actually go go forward with that trial. Could sort of change the uh, um, the the cost calculus for them on uh, on some of those things. So um, they'll be interesting to see. Obviously, not as big uh, um, on the uh, reforms as sort of the the initial uh, um, expiration of uh, uh, of approval that was in some of the uh, uh, Democratic uh, um, early versions. And uh, um, doesn't seem like it's uh, um, encouraging the. Uh, the pathway in the same way that perhaps the Republican uh, uh, legislative uh, proposals had wanted, but uh, as you say, Derek, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, um, the something that something that nobody wanted is sort of, kind of uh, uh, often sort of kind of the best uh, the best compromise. So uh, that's that's where we are, uh, um, and it seems it seems like uh, um, sponsors will also be having to do uh, do some things that perhaps they didn't necessarily want to do uh, either under these uh, um, clinical trial or uh, diversity provisions that uh, that are in there. Obviously. Uh, um, uh, sponsors have committed to these uh, these issues and uh, um, yeah, working very uh, um, diligently in many cases on them. But uh, now there are some uh, some instructions from Congress as to what FDA should do, right, Brenda? Yes, um, the the bill uh, includes a diversity provision, and it says um, that FDA, HHS is to evaluate whether FDA needs authority to mandate post-approval studies or. Um, post-market surveillance if sponsors don't meet the goals in their uh, diversity enrollment action plans. Um, and that was a uh, big difference between a, from a bill that uh, Anna Eshoo introduced in February, the DEPICT Act, which would have outright given FDA this authority. Um, and the other portion of that, um, the, the, that provision that, that stood out was um, they, did, they asked um, for a guidance, uh, a new guidance or a revised guidance to be issued within a certain time frame, and FDA just um, just a couple of weeks ago issued a a guidance on on di- uh, diversity plans for sponsors to have to improve enrollment for underrepresented racial and ethnic populations in clinical trials, and um, the the provision in in the bill echoes some of the provisions in FDA's guidance. So um, one was um, uh, FDA said that sponsors should discuss plans as soon as as soon as practical, um, practicable um, during the um, product development period. And um, the the user fee bill has almost identical language there. Um, no later than end of phase two is what FDA said. And the the bill says something similar, um, and um, it, it's not clear whether FDA. You wouldn't think that they'd have to introduce, um, come up with a whole new guidance, but they would probably revise this guidance, um, uh, you know, um, to meet the the requirements of the user fee. Um, 
once they get feedback on it, they would do that anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that this kind of that this kind of emerged, you know, kind of the same week that um, you know, you know that the that um, you know the the Oncology Center of Excellence was talking about this very topic actually um, as part of the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. They they had a community conversation and uh, Rick Pazder kind of made made a comment asking about how they you know if sponsors are willing to kind of change some of the ways that they do business. Um, you know, to increase uh, trial diversity, which is you know kind of an interesting thing. And he he uh, he mentioned he mentioned even you know do we need to kind of uh, I don't know if mandate is the right word you know kind of w- what he's thinking about, but he was saying you know do, should we start thinking about percentages of U.S. trial participants in some of these oncology trials in order to ensure that the you know the underrepresented populations are better you know are you know, are uh, participating in these trials because they it's been a real problem. And um, he's saying the, the current, I, I believe it was 20% was the current total of U.S., on average, the U.S. Uh, participants in some of these oncology trials. And he's saying, like, if you're trying to get underrepresented populations in there, you know, in these trials, trying to get it in a 20% kind of um you know, slice of the whole of the whole pie is really going to make it difficult. Yes, yeah, a very interesting intersection with uh, um, his concerns about uh, uh, China only data and those uh, uh, complete response letters that we uh, uh, saw recently. Sort of, they're uh, they're now starting to uh, to pile up and uh, force uh, sponsors to sort of rethink about uh, where where they do their trials in order to sort of get through the uh, the FDA. So it'll be interesting to see how that. Uh, plays out even without strict legislative authority, whether uh, um, that's an adjustment that sponsors need to make. Yeah, and and that's those are just two of the issues that we found. That, uh, yeah, there's it. There's a you know it's over a hundred and I believe it's 180 some pages of bill that's in there uh, that uh, with various items that are in there, and uh, we have a we'll we'll put in the show notes links to the um, you know to the stories and the um, the table that. Um, you know, lists kind of the major uh, the major pieces and titles in there, so you can uh, take a look and find the area that interests you. But um, this is definitely also, not. Oh, I'm sorry. Def- go ahead, Brenda. No, no. I was just going to point out there was another thing that caught uh, people's attention. Um, well, <laughs> caught some people. I'm I'm really glad it was pointed out to me because I didn't see it right away because it it's just like a, a couple of sentences in there. But they they what they the bill does is it um, effectively overturns rulings against FDA in two cases. Um, one was the Catalyst case involving FDA's interpretation of the Orphan Drug Act, and um, um, the courts had ruled that FDA couldn't provide a separate orphan exclusivity for a different subpopulation of a drug, and um, the the bill actually um, changes the, the wording in the FDC Act uh, to say that um, FDA can, um, orphan exclusivity um, can be limited to a specific indication that the drug was approved for. So FDA can approve another drug for a different indication or subpopulation. And if people remember, the battle here was Catalyst had um, a drug for DAPSI uh, for a rare autoimmune disease, and they had an orphan indication in adults, and FDA pu- up, approved Jacobus's Resurgi for, um, with the same the same drug for pediatric use. And... Um, 
the, there was a, a, a battle over that. And, you know, uh, FDA lost, but um, now this reverses it. And so FDA's interpretation of the Orphan Drug Act is, is if, if this uh, law is passed, they they would prevail and nor did i asked nord about this and and nor then um and they uh, support uh fda's interpretation and their support this provision and another uh, just quickly another um major um uh, change in the law is there was this huge battle over genus medical had with fda uh, um and a court uh, this uh, on appeal, a court ruled for Genis that ra radio um, that their um, contrast agent would be regulated as a device instead of a drug, and um, uh, this led FDA um, to decide to begin transitioning certain products from being regulated as drugs to device status. And there was uh, an uproar among uh, many companies in industry. Um, people said this could be a, a potentially seismic event in industry. Um, and so the bill specifies uh, that any contrast agent, radioactive drug, or OTC monograph will be regulated as a drug. So um, th th that's a, you know, in that area, but there's still several drugs, there's classes that FDA would still um, uh, be subject to FDA review to decide whether to regulate them as, as drugs or devices. Um, and it, one attorney said that, you know, um, th that FDA will do, be doing that assessment case by case. Uh, and like, for instance, um, ophthalmic drug, uh, drugs, um, they're being, re FDA has said that they would regulate them as combination drugs so they'd be subject to device requirements. Brenda, I really enjoyed your uh, story and it's just sort of uh, interesting how these uh, things play out. It's not uh, sort of kind of the, the cliche of, uh, you know, industry versus regulator. Like in each of these cases, there were different sponsors who stood to, you know, benefit or, uh, you know, suffer a, uh, a setback based on how uh, the court case came out and then how the uh, the legislative uh, fix came out, and so uh, um, you know it's uh, um, you know great uh, perhaps for the folks that uh, got these uh, um, these decisions reversed, but uh, a disappointment for the uh, the sponsors that uh, you know thought they had won in court. Yeah, for Genesis, it's a it's a huge huge blow. I mean, I talked to the CEO yesterday, and he said that it would absolutely devastate them. The the cost of of having their um, barium sulfate be regarded as a uh, as a drug now it will be subject to drug filing fees and maintenance fees. And he he said that ju that's just uh, prohibitive. They they're they're going to have to um, you know downsize a company, and um, they just they just can't afford those fees. Yeah, that's interesting that they this the, you know that um, you know it, it 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 you know they they you win in court and then you gotta you know you only to find that uh, you know Capitol Hill kind of pulls the rug out from under you as you're you know as you're trying to move on with you know with your day. But uh, yeah, this that that and all the and a lot of other little nuggets are you know hidden away and probably more will be tucked into into this bill as we go forward and it it, uh, it gets. Uh, it gets uh, get more pay, more members of Congress and lobbyists and so forth get a look at it. So we'll be be something to follow going forward. Next up, we're going to discuss the over-the-counter conversion of the opioid rescue medication naloxone. 
The FDA wants this to happen, but so far industry is not really taking the hint. Uh, Commissioner Robert Califf said right now the financial model isn't working out for sponsors, and he wants the agency to consider what can be done with the OTC specifications to encourage more companies to make the products. Now, I want to bring Malcolm in on this because he covers the OTC market for HBW Insight and has worked on the naloxone story before. So, Malcolm, can you shed some light on kind of what the kind of what types of problems we have here with OTC naloxone and kind of why we're stuck at, the, at this moment? Uh, thanks, Derek, and, and thanks for inviting me to to participate today. And and, and this this uh, podcast is uh, is I've listened to a few, not all certainly, but I listened to a few, and they're very informative. And and uh, you guys are doing a great job. And, and of course, we have uh, podcasts from Europe from our reporter David Ridley and a more recent one started in the U.S. from our reporter Hannah Daniel. And as as far as I can see, those are getting well received too. Um, it's uh, interesting that we you you, know, you just now discuss the uh, uh, user fee uh, structure and and the renewal and everything because uh, uh, on one uh, OTC switches are subject to PDUFA fees. Uh, it's not. Uh, there are, you know, it's not a as large amount by any stretch of money as, uh, you know, our the RX companies will pay annually or during the five years, of course. But it is something that the, you know, they that they are charged for. Uh, interestingly, uh, NDAs that are not switches, and I'm not talking OTC monograph. The NDAs for OTCs that are not switches, those are not covered by PDUFA. I guess because they don't originate on the RX side, but that's just a little something to file away, if you will. As far as naloxone, uh, I, I think uh, uh, Commissioner Caleb, you know, he, he's accurate um, in that the industry really hasn't responded robustly, if you will. Uh, um, uh, HRT, uh, I, I, I forget the actual name of it at, at the moment, I'm sorry, uh, um, has worked on it a lot. In fact, they had a, a large grant from Pfizer, not from Pfizer, from Purdue, uh, uh, the drug company to do a phase one trial uh, with naloxone, and uh, and they have worked. They have given uh, submitted a, you know a good amount of uh, information to FDA, uh, and, and I think and then of course uh, FDA took the unprecedented step, and and the, and the agency itself used that term unprecedented step of of paying for a study to draft a model drug facts label for naloxone OTC drug facts label. Uh, and that was several, that was, I think, 2018 that, that they did that, and it was announced in 2019. And, and so, you know, both industry and the FDA have worked on this. However, and it's, and it, I will preface this by saying it's easy to dismiss the term stigma as just, you know, cultural uh, ranting, if you will. But there is, stigma does apply. I mean, d- does the FDA want to give OTC approval to something that can be sold next door, next on the, on the uh, counter to aspirin, but is is only used because people are ODing on o- opioid drugs, you know, other drugs too, for that matter. Um, so that's, that's a question they have to ask. And I don't, and I don't imply, or don't in, intend to state that I know that I'm inside their heads at all, but uh, you know, yes, that DFL model was unprecedented, but since then, I'm sure, I'm certain that FDA has said, whoa, you know, OTC, naloxone, 
as easy to get as aspirin? What are we doing? Are we are we saying that that people should have OTC rescue drug uh, to keep from dying as easily as they can get an OTC drug to, for a headache? You know, my uh, my that description, that analogy, perhaps is too explicit, but but that's what it comes down to. Uh, I think uh, HRT and perhaps other companies are ready with. Uh, uh, you know, uh, consumer comprehension, label comprehension work, and so on, to show that this this nasal spray uh, uh, version of naloxone, this nasal spray format, can be safely used OTC. Uh, but uh, what it's going to require is some voluntary, and you can think the Plan B emerging contraceptive on this, some voluntary move by the NDA sponsor to say we will put this behind the counter. And the consumer has to ask the pharmacist for it. We all know the FDA can't require that. They can, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the sponsor that this is what it's going to take to uh, get this done. But that's what is going to happen. So, uh, you know, we can say OTC in the in the uh, context of non-prescription. But if it does become available, uh, you know, non-prescription, it's going to be behind the counter and a voluntary move by the NDA sponsor. Um, you know, there's no abuse potential for the ingredient, uh, the nasal spray, uh, you know, use by a second person to administer to the, you know, the emergency patient is apparently very, uh, is done very well consistently in testing. Uh, you know, it's not an injection or anything other, anything more, more complicated than a nasal spray. And uh, the, uh, you know, the efficacy is in OTC and non-prescription use is very, uh, very strong. Um, but then, uh, and I, if I could end with, the, we were actually where, where you started, Derek, on the financial thing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's ironic that the, and a, a drug that is most needed OTC because of current conditions, naloxone, is the drug that would be the least profitable OTC for the industry. You know, as much as it's needed, the total market is a fraction of what companies, you know, and, and margins are low in OTC anyways, is a fraction of what companies, uh, you know, want for their OTC drugs. Um, so, there, there, you know, Calif was accurate. There is a financial issue here, um, but um, it's perhaps not entirely, his, his, uh, uh, his appreciation for it is not entirely not the entire picture uh companies have to invest in their research and so on uh but you know if they invest in that they want to get a you know roi you know at a certain premium and they're not going to get it for for naloxone hrt as you know is a non-profit so that they have a different uh, different uh, business model um then uh, if i could switch to the, the the broader picture of switches that uh that Califf was referencing. Uh, since 2012, FDA has wanted uh, industry, well, has invited industry to work with it, and industry has on how to adjust its model, its framework for approving switches that would expand the information that inf in consumers could use to make the selection, the self-selection of, of an OTC drug. R right now, it's limited, you know, it's limited to uh, regula you know, regulation-wise, and uh, pardon me for interrupting myself, but regulation-wise, it's limited to the, the DFL, the drug facts label. It's a one-dimensional thing. 
on a container. It can be multiple layers. We all have those things that you peel back for more information, uh, but that's it. Uh, and so a new rule, a rulemaking is needed to allow companies to use, uh, to refer uh, consumers to online information uh, that would assist them in, uh, you know, in uh, determining whether they need the drug and, and, you know, which one to use or whatever. Uh, so that's, and, and, you know, that's, it's, it may sound simple, but it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite convoluted. It's a very difficult and complicated process to get from just simply a DFL to allowing extra label information to be included as officially the label and officially part of what the consumer is using to determine whether he or she needs a drug. And of course, it gets back to financial, you know, does a company want to do that? There's, there is there is draft guidance, but no rule. But does a company want to do that, invest all that money, and then go to FDA, FDA says, uh, no, this isn't going to work. So they they a rulemaking is needed for some certainty on what will work, won't, won't, won't work. And so therefore the financial, again, the financial picture comes into focus. Companies know that if they spend, uh, you know, they, they have a, uh, you know, and their data is good, you know, if they, if they have a good chance of, uh, of, of you know of success with a, a and it's called novel OT switches novel in the sense that it's different from what we know as switches today. Uh, any number of drugs, erectile dysfunction, uh, high uh, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, uh, 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 conditions that are not self-limiting, and that frankly many healthcare professionals you know still think should be treated only with RX drugs and, and you know and in-office treatment. Um, so, uh, if we're going to get to, uh, in the U S where we have OTC access or at least non-prescription access to drugs for non-limiting conditions, it's going to be through the novel switch process. Um, so, uh, Caleb's, uh, comments were, you know, very, very diplomatic and very commissionary, if you will. He, he knew what he was talking about, but he also knew that there, there was, wasn't time there to discuss the whole picture of what he meant. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's an interesting problem, and, and I like it, and I, I'm really interested about the stigma part because no, a lot of people don't think about that. Where a, and even if it's behind the counter, like you you mentioned, Malcolm, I'm sure it's not easy for a lot of people to go up to the pharmacist and say, um, "Can I have some naloxone?" You know, just like it it would be you know difficult to say, "Can I have a you know Can I have a Plan B uh, uh, thing or you know or or something else that's back there?" So yeah, it's you know whether that plays into the financial part of it. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it does. But, um, you know, it, it's a it's a, a whole interesting kind of storm of problems that we've got, you know, going on here. Yeah. Um, and now I remember the name of the company, Harm Reduction Therapeutics, uh, HRT. And Hannah Daniel had a story a month ago or so, maybe less, couple stories, very good in, uh, insight from experts on that, the the stigma and what's in and what other problems are stopping the uh, you know OTC availability of naloxone, um, and and I guess studies have shown that you know consumers that they just don't want to uh, be known to you know asking for naloxone. And in addition to the emotional thing, there is a uh, I guess you can call a, an official thing that if you know if I go to ask for naloxone, it could it could turn up on my healthcare records. And if I go to apply for a job, somebody my employer is going to ask you were getting naloxone. And so there has to be a, an assurance that that's not that there's going to be no paper trail or digital trail that somebody has bought naloxone. Mm -hmm. um, that was 
new to me. I had not even thought about that, but that's interesting, of course. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Malcolm. I'm curious about the uh, the novel switch uh, uh, pathway. Is that sort of kind of all in FDA's court now? They just have to finalize this rule, or is there any legislation that sort of kind of could uh, uh, could move it along? Uh, where do things stand? Well, funny you should ask that, Nielsen. Uh, one of the things that I, I I have today after this call is I'm talking with somebody about the proposed rulemaking. Uh, I've heard, and there's no reason to doubt it, but I've heard from a couple of people that, that it's been sent to OMB. The proposed rule has been sent to the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure somebody I know has the document. I've been able, unable to get it. No, you know, I'm not worried about that. I'll get it as soon as everybody else does. So there is progress. And it, it took FDA, you know, doing that uh, a lot. You know, they hadn't they hadn't got to. I think pen to paper on a rule make a proposed rulemaking document until post COVID, till post pandemic. So like everything else, it's, it's been slowed by that. And you know, it's it's a brand as much as uh, OTC drugs are common. It's it's a brand new area. Uh, it's a brand new rule, really. And uh, they, they of course they want to get it right. Uh, they don't want to they don't want to open up a can of worms and go through another ten plus years of comment before we have a rule, right? Um, so. Uh, I think, yeah, I think 2022, before the end of this year, maybe in the in the final quarter, we'll see a rule, proposed rule. Great. Well, yeah. it'll be very interesting when it comes out. Yeah, it's very interesting, Malcolm. Thanks for your for your insight on this on this whole issue. It's another one of these that uh, you know kind of is is continuing to roll along, and and people are still you know trying to figure out the best way to handle it. So uh, we'll be we'll be watching it uh, you know as we move forward here. If I if I can add one more thing about it again, it's uh, relevant to the user fee thing, uh, and this was user fees for the OTC monograph are uh, yeah, common and hot topic, um, and but they are all not on the same five. They're on a five year thing, but it's not the same five year period that the rest of the UFAs are on. And to me, that's problematic. And I wonder. And I, I'm again, I'm certain that other people have said, wait a minute, you know, we're kind of the outlier here. Why are we not part of the uh, um, UFA five-year thing with it, with the other UFAs, and it's because, of course, it was approved at a time when it was, you know, not in the it was mid-cycle for the rest of the UFAs. Um, so uh, the uh, OTC monograph user fee, there actually is no OTC monograph user fee act, but they adopted the OMUFA acronym just like PADUFA, MADUFA, etc. Um, so, but I, I'm thinking that at, at some point industry and other stakeholders and FDA might say, you know what, we should make OMUFA, put it in the same, under the same circus tent as PADUFA, MADUFA, et cetera. So that's my two cents on that. Yeah, definitely uh, something that you would think logic will, will win out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Malcolm, for, for coming on and uh, right. explaining this all to us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. I got to go though. Take care guys. Finally, we're going to discuss an FDA angle on probably the biggest story of the year so far. Most of our listeners likely know about the bombshell leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion indicating the court likely will vote to overturn the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion. But in the fallout of the decision, there are also questions about the future of Mifepristone. I didn't do it. I didn't, bu I didn't butcher it. Uh, otherwise known as the abortion pill. Brenda, you looked at this for us. What, what do we think is going to happen here? Well, if um if if the if the um if the court ruling um 
issues and, and it overturns Roe versus Wade, there'll, there'll be more um, people turning to mifepristone. Um, but but states, if, if they put it all out, prohibit abortion entirely, that would apply to the abortion pill too. Um, people would be prohibited from using the pill. So um, I talked to an ACLU attorney who's who's uh, closely following this and involved in um, litigation against uh, state laws that are trying to um, restrict abortion. And she said that the the pill won't, won't be a panacea because prosecutors are going after um, go, going after uh, use of the pill. They're coming up with creative ways to prosecute people, like you know, child using child abuse laws and um, uh, practicing uh, medicine without a license violations claims. Um, so the the. The states are already um, imposing restrictions on the use of the pill. The Guttmacher Institute, um, you know, they they found that abortion, uh, medical abortion, has increased. It's a it's the largest um, uh, accounting of abortion. It counts for 54 percent of abortions in the U.S. in 2020, which was up from 39 percent in 2017. And and um, at the same time that abortion overall is declining, the use of abortion pills increasing. And um, the Institute said that this was due, um, the, the, the use of the abortion pill had steadily increased since, um, since the pill was approved in 2000. And that's, uh, there's been a, a greater increase in the last few years. And that's been because of the pandemic and also because FDA allowed non-physician medical professionals, professionals to provide the drug. Um, so, so as this has been increasing, states have our uh, state legislators have focused on the pill. They've been doing that, and it's expected to increase now. Um, once, uh, if if Roe versus Wade is overturned, and and so um, the, the Goodmucker Institute tracked all these uh, actions that states have have. Um, have undertaken like three states are banning the mailing of pills. Three other states um, had passed laws and they're stayed under court um, court court injunctions. Um, Sixteen states have uh, legislation to um, a, oh, sixteen state legislators have introduced bans or restrictions on um, medication abortion uh, as of as of February. Uh, including uh, the ban on use of it entirely, uh, prohibiting mailing, barring use of telehealth um, to provide abortion rights. So all so th- th- this attack on the uh, abortion pill has has just escalated, and it's expected to escalate. And doctors who prescribe uh, abortion pills, they can do so in, in the states that will allow abortion, but it, for states that prohibit it, they will be prohibited from um, providing te- through telehealth or whatever. And different states are trying to pass legislation to protect them so that they won't be prosecuted if they provide um, the abortion pill in states that prohibit abortion. Thank you, Brenda. It's a very interesting uh, to think about this. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a uh, FDA-approved product, and uh, you think that would sort of make it available uh, uh, nationwide. But 
uh, just as sort of, uh, you know, you, you came up with a couple of examples and as you were talking, it occurred to me that sort of kind of, uh, you know, biosimilar dispensing and sort of kind of what the uh, um, criteria beyond uh, for that is sort of kind of uh, can vary uh, um, state by state. So it's just sort of just a, um, this level of complexity in terms of uh, uh, pharmaceutical regulation that is perhaps underappreciated. That sort of, kind of the states really can uh, drive a lot of sort of kind of what uh, what drugs are taken how. Yeah, it's a yeah, and we saw we saw it, you know because the states kind of you know uh, regulate you know physician licensing and so forth. They can you know really get they're the ones unlike the FDA, which you know everyone thinks can. Uh, you know, influence medical practice. They're the ones that actually me influence medical practice. So you even see some of it there as well. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, and, and you mentioned this in your story, and and, we, and I've listened, I've been to, uh, I've listened to hearings where uh, Dr. Califf, uh, the commissioner, FDA commissioner, has been talking about, been asked about this, and you know, they he's been kind of questioned a lot about the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy around um, the abortion pill and the the recent decision by FDA to, um, you know, to kind of loosen it a little bit. I mean, do, it, it, do you think that the, that going after the REMS could be something else, uh, another restriction that they could try to, you know, that they could, you know, go after here? You know, I mean, no matter what happens in the, you know, with the decision, the court decision? Well, um, there, there a group of... Um... Uh, pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists in the American College of Pediatricians. And in, in 2019, they filed a citizen petition to FDA to uh, retain the REMS and, and, and uh, further limit dispensing. And FDA denied the, this petition at that the, at the very same time that it announced that it would make um, in-person dispensing, uh, eliminate it entirely, you know, what it what it happened is um, that um, the ACLU filed suit against FDA in 2017 to do away with REMS restrictions, and that case was stayed while FDA did a whole review of of the REMS, and they they looked at um, the published literature, the safety information, um, the the FDA adverse event reporting system, and they concluded that it that. that um, in-person dispensing wasn't needed, that it was just as safe for patients to get it, you know, through the mail or um, from a pharmacy. They didn't, they didn't need to, they didn't need to go to a doctor to get it. Um, so, so what happened is um, then in May of 2020, so you filed another suit against FDA um, and they said in-person dispensing during the pandemic was, um, you know, exposing people to, to the virus. Um, in violation of their rights. And um, a district court, uh, you know, issued a preliminary injunction halting FDA's requirement for in-person dispensing. And then the Supreme Court reinstated the decision. But FDA decided, wait, we're not going to, we're going to use enforcement discretion. So they weren't going to go after people for um, for getting it outside in-person in dispensing. And then in December of last year, they made that permanent. So, so Caleb, as you know, Derek, you, you um, uh, saw him, him being t um, questioned during the confirmation process and pe uh, Republicans really honed in and on him and it was, you know, Caleb was, was great and, you know, saying that he supported the FDA staff, that they, their review was complete and their conclusion, he supported their conclusion. Then he, he was questioned about this again um, last week during um, a, a hearing on the 
budget request for 2023. And again, he said like that the FDA did this very thorough review and it's completely safe to, it's just as safe as, um, you know, it, it, the use of the pill is safe and in-person in dispensing is not required. And so I think that people, you know, and one of the Republicans on the committee said, oh, I just sent you, that was Cindy Hyde-Smith. She said, I sent you a letter last week asking you to, you know, again, impose in-person in dispensing requirements. And I got your response. And, and you know, he repeated again what he said over and over. And so I think that um, members of Congress uh, uh, are will continue to push for that. But I think that um, it might become... It, it will become moot in states that, that ban, if states ban um, the abortion pill, if they ban all abortion, that will apply to abortion pills. So the REMS won't really matter. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a roundabout way of, of answering your question, Derek. <laughs> it's, just a, it, it's an interesting thought because we've already, we've heard it in other in other contexts. Like we're, I mean, the, the one that comes to mind right away is there's, you know, there was uh, concern, disgust, whatever you want to call it, when um, CMS, you know, made the coverage decision on the Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm, saying you could only get it if you were in a clinical trial, which drastically restricted access to it. And there was talk that, you know, you know, should Congress try and over, you know, just pass a law that gets rid of that decision and, or, and, you know, if if something like that is considered, you know, if a you know if if we get to a um, you know a Republican majority in Congress in the fall and and they decide to go after this, I mean, could they could they pass a law making the FDA do you know make a make the you know the REMS in person dispensing again? I I don't know. I don't know if that's even being considered, but it's something I'm sure it, you know. I'm not the only one who's thought about it. You know that something like this could, uh, you know, could certainly be an option if, if, it, if they want, if, uh, you know, certain people want to pursue it. It's an interesting kind of thought exercise mm -hmm. to have. <laughs> yeah, well, some of the states have, have um, introduced the, the, that kind of restriction that would not, not they're not really addressing REMS, but uh, directly, but they are going after that, that whole issue. Like some of the uh, bills are saying, you know, a physician has to be present at administration, um, you can't use telemedicine to provide uh, the abortion pill. Um, so th uh, even if they don't say REMS directly, I mean, it's 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 dealing with uh, the actual provisions of the REMS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, you know, again, if you're trying to limit, you know, use of the, the medication short of an outright ban, because you can't, you know, there are going to be states that won't ban it. If you say nationwide, if you force the FDA to say, it has to be dispensed in person, then all of a sudden you eliminate a lot of the possibilities for, you know, for, like you said, the telehealth, the mail, the mail order, mm -hmm. and that, that kind of stuff. Um, and which, you know, if, if your goal is to further limit abortion, you know, and, and use of the pill, that's, you know, again, one option, thought exercise. I'm not a legal expert. I don't know if they could do that. But, you know, again, interesting thing to think about. <laughs> So th this is an, one of these an, this is one of these issues that, you know, it's, it's going to go on and we're waiting. Everyone, of course, now is waiting with bated breath for the Supreme Court to actually issue the decision, uh, which is expected in probably about a month or so. But, um, you know, 
this this I don't think this issue is going to go away. I don't think the attention on the REMS is going to go away either. So, well, that's Derek, all. Before we uh, before we go, I need to wish you a happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I, I one of the reasons I, I like uh, I like Derby Day is that every few years it falls on my birthday, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Brenda Sandberg and Matt Hobbs. And a special thanks to Malcolm Spicer for joining us today. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 